There's an ease to adopting an ideology because it gives you ready-made answers for any situation. There's this thinking that if we try to understand them, we're justifying them, and that's not what we're doing. You want to understand what makes monsters tick. If you put a Middle Ages executioner on trial in a modern courtroom, but the jury had to be made up of people from his era, does the guy get acquitted or found guilty? Some of the bad people of history would be found innocent by a jury of their peers, but some of them stand out in such a way that even in their time period, they would have been convicted by the people of their era. I'm a devil's advocate kind of guy. Those quotes are from a podcast that Dan Carlin did on the History on Fire show with Danielle Brunelli. And Carlin's Hardcore History podcast and Common Sense podcast are some of my favorite shows. He goes into ideas and he explains the history of things in a way that nobody else really does. And I once mentioned online that um, students would be better served if they just listened to Dan Carlin's history podcast rather than go to classes. And, and it was one of my most popular tweets of the time when I, when I shared it with people. But in, the, in this podcast, in this History on Fire podcast that Carlin does, he really goes into explaining the ideas behind learning about history. He explains why it's so important to study history and to figure things out. And he and Daniele both talk about um, having empathy so that you understand someone, but you don't necessarily agree with them. This has been a major shift in the last six months of my life is to try to aim for understanding, not necessarily agreement. When, when I'm seeing people on Twitter or uh, reading posts on Facebook or even just talking to people in my everyday life, there's a lot of things that you don't have in common with people. And if you think that they're wrong just because you don't have something in common with them, you're really not understanding their situation. My oldest daughter right now signed up for a weekly horse riding lessons. So we go to a farm that's near our house so she can ride on a horse for an hour in the afternoons. And as I'm there and I'm talking to the lady that runs this horse riding operation, she's really telling me how she's into riding horses and, and all the stuff that goes into feeding horses and taking care of horses and, and then eventually, you know, you know, putting horses down if they break a leg. And, and there's all this stuff that's involved in with horseback riding and then there's this horse riding culture she has signs up in her barn and there's bumper stickers on her truck and this this common language that these horse riders have and she talks to her horses like like they're people like they understand her and i i laughed in my own head when i saw this because i do that too i do that to my dogs we have two dogs at our house and I talk to them, even though I know they don't understand all of the words that I'm saying, but maybe they're picking up on my body language or my tone of voice or something. And behind this, behind whether you have horses that you talk to or whether you have dogs that you talk to, is this idea of empathy. And you have to understand that everybody's got something in their life that they're going to find enjoyable that you find weird. And you have to understand that if you're really going to understand people. People do weird sports. People have different hobbies. There's this whole world of things that you and I aren't involved with. But if we understand why those, those people do those things, even if we would never want to do those things ourselves, I think we'll get a more accurate view of the world. And that's something that Dan Carlin promotes in this podcast and the ones that he does.
one. Clayton Christensen is a professor at the Harvard Business School, and he's the author of Disruption Theory. Disruption Theory is this idea that new entrants can disrupt a market by being a low-cost provider that does something that customers want. So traditionally, this looks like there's an established company, and it's innovating, and it's only making small changes. And the changes that it's making may not even be wanted by the people who, who uh, are consuming the product. And a new company can come in and they can be cheaper, but they have something that the customer really wants. It's all about figuring out what the customer wants. And companies that get disrupted ultimately don't do this. And in Christensen's multiple books on uh, the subject of disruption theory, he explains how this happened in motorcycles and how it happened in the disc, disc making units for computers. He explains how it happened at, at, in the industrial level with steel mills. And so disruption theory pivots around what job customers hire you to do. If you do something that's beyond what the customer wants, if you do something that the customer doesn't care about, but it still costs money to do that thing, then customers will find these low-cost alternatives that do everything that they need and then, and then maybe something else. And that's a good idea for any business owner to have in mind. What job are your customers hiring you to do? If you're a financial advisor, what's your job? Is it to share information? Is it to communicate? Is it to make the customer feel special or safe? So every customer is hiring you to do something. And once you identify what that is, you'll probably serve your customers better. Ben Thompson had an interesting um, podcast and article about the newspaper business. And he makes the case that newspapers can come back as subscriptions, but probably not with the advertising vehicle because advertisers are better served if they're online or if they're targeted ads on Facebook or on, on Twitter or if it's a direct mailing. So the job that advertisers hired newspapers to do was to get this message out to all the people in this area. And there's other ways to do that now. So newspapers need to find new ways to to please their customer. So if you're a newspaper editor, you have to figure out where is my revenue going to come from? It can come from subscriptions and it can come from advertising. And what do the subscribers want? What are you able to provide for them? What job are those subscribers hiring you for? And how can you provide that? And for advertisers, what job are the advertisers hiring your newspaper to do? And if it's to get the word out in front of a geographic area. Maybe newspapers work fine for that, but uh, advertising is going to be really hard because there's other ways that advertisers can hire that job. Josh Brown had a moment like this in his career. He was on a couple podcasts lately where the reform broker talked about early in his career, he was forced to sell products to his customers that he didn't want to sell. And he was looking at this and he had this this moral dilemma because he really didn't believe in the things that he was doing and he had to figure out what are my customers hiring me for and, and is this a job that I ultimately want to do and as Josh has switched from uh, from being a, a broker and from someone who's selling things to be an advisor and and working with Barry Ritholtz at Ritholtz Wealth Management he's more in line with the job that his customers hired him to do he's better able to do that job because he wants to do that job more a third example of this that came up was in the Intelligent Fanatics book by Sean Idings and Ian Castle. And 
all of the CEOs, all of the company founders and company executives that are profiled in this book did a really good job of figuring out what job their customers were hiring them to do. A number of the CD CEOs had very adaptive mindsets. They knew that they couldn't plan where their company was going to go. They couldn't forecast that far ahead. So they adopted this uh, flexible mindset where they were able to pivot and make changes. In his book about Jeff Bezos, Brad Stone wrote that Amazon likes to hire people that Bezos considers athletes, people that are flexible and can switch from roles and switch jobs and be able to do multiple different things. So whatever your services, whatever you're providing, you need to figure out what are your customers really hiring you to do and do that as best you can for them. Two. I finished a reread of Trent Griffin's book, Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor. Some people were asking me on Twitter if I recommend this book to others, and yeah, it was a really good book for me. It, it provided a good foothold for understanding Munger and understanding what his contributions and perspective on Berkshire Hathaway were. If you're really familiar with Munger and if you've read um, some of the Berkshire letters or you followed Munger for a long time, I'm not sure this book will be as helpful for you. One thing that Griffin does well in this book is he lays things out in a very linear fashion. In fact, he lists many of the things that Munger has written about uh, with numbers. And so this numbered ordered list is helpful because it's almost like a checklist. And checklists are really important. For starters, if you make your own checklist, it's a form of writing down things. And time and time again, we see that writing is, is basically a form of thinking. In his podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, uh, William Thorndike said about writing, quote, It's interesting to write when you are trying to figure something out. It's fun to try and solve an interesting problem and write about it, end quote. And we hear this time and time again from other people is that if you write things down, it helps clarify your thoughts. It makes your thinking more rigorous. It stands up better if you write things down. And so if you start to create your own checklist or if you adapt your checklist and use the ones that are presented in this book about Munger and you answer things by writing them down. That's going to help your thinking. Another thing that checklists help for is they help may eliminate mistakes. They, they create errors of omission in doing this. So for some checklists, you're going to miss out on things. And when you're making decisions, you have to be okay with this, with your checklist ruling out too much rather than not enough. In a podcast that he did, Ben Carlson said he's constantly telling his clients that you need to be uh, comfortable with someone outperforming you. You need to have regret minimization. You're not going to be uh, the best person in the market, but you, you certainly are capable of following your own goals and, and doing your own plan and running your own race. So if your checklist says not to do something and you don't do it, but someone else does it and they have a fantastic outcome, you need to be okay with that because checklists are really helpful when they tilt you towards high probabilistic activities. So you get into areas where things still may be uncertain, but the odds are tilted a little bit in your favor. If you think of the floor of a casino, you can think of the slot machines and you could think of the blackjack table and you think of the roulette table and you can think of all the other casino games that are available. And 
you can say, okay, my checklist is going to be, I'm only going to play games where the odds are 40% uh, in my favor. And so that's going to rule out things like roulette or um, the slot machines and maybe guide you toward tables that have better odds, like, like playing blackjack against other players at the casino. Checklists are also really helpful because defaults have a powerful influence in our life. If you can create a situation where you have good defaults that guide you to good decisions, that, that's going to help a lot. When Casey Neistat was building his technology company, Bean, he, he had a default no. It was that uh, he wasn't accepting any new work opportunities that didn't directly help his company, uh, Bean. Uh, Danny Meyer says that when someone pitches a new restaurant to him, he says no 99% of the time because Meyer has all the work he can handle. He doesn't need um, he doesn't need any more restaurants to look into. On the other hand, Google has a default of yes for creative projects that people might want to explore. This is a trait of Southwest Airlines too, where employees are encouraged to try new things, and so the checklist item might say, is this a, an interesting idea? Yes, and then if it is, you can, you can follow it along. And so if we create checklists, they help us think because we're writing things down. It does create some errors, and you have to be comfortable with checklists ruling out too much stuff. And checklists work because it forces you into a default position that um, for whatever psychological reason, we tend to hold defaults fairly strongly. Three. I've been thinking a lot lately about education and how the established educational institutions serve students. That is, to relate to an earlier point, how well do they do the job that students are hired for? My kids are both in elementary school right now, and, and the job sometimes feels as much that, that um, they're babysat, they're occupied in a safe place, and they're fed. And that's one of the primary jobs of school. And then teaching them sometimes feels like it's a secondary job for the kids. School is shifting from a place that provides information to a place that provides relevance. Information now is available literally at your fingertips. You have this podcast. You have books that you can order in two days from Amazon.com. There's Twitter, there's great blogs and YouTube channels. And so all the information that you want is available. It's out there. What people really need when they learn is relevance. They need things to connect. They need the pieces of information to be like nodes of a spider web where it's connected to something, it's relevant to something else, and it's related to something else. This is what I try to do on the podcast and on my blog, uh, thewaiterspad.com. And as you go through your life, and as you continue a attitude of lifelong learning, this idea of relevance and connection expands and it compounds. And the more things you learn, the more potential nodes you have to connect to. I finished this book called The Tiger by John Valiant, and it was a wonderful book. I think I talked about it on a previous podcast. And in this book, I established another connection to the country of Russia and a lot of things about Russia were in this book about the tiger. And that relates to another book that I 
finished earlier this year called uh, The Prisoners of Geography. And so in both of these books, as I read them, as I learn more, as I grow my information base, I'm also providing relevance in how things connect and how things relate to one another. So as you go through your own learning process, think about making those connections, making that relevance, and starting to figure things out. It's not so much about accumulating information. Four. I had a bit of podcast serendipity one day last week when an interview with Ben Carlson on Planet Microcap was next to the in the queue next to an interview with Ryan Flaherty on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And in hearing these episodes back to back, I realized that finances and fitness have a lot in common. If you want to be healthy in either one of those areas, there's some principles that really seem to translate between the two. The first is to keep it simple. Carlson says that, quote, people assume they have to make it complex to succeed, to change strategies with every macro environment, end quote. You don't need to do that. You don't have to complicate things. There's a lot of simple financial advice that once it's followed, if it's followed, it will lead to great returns. Flaherty said that elite athletes um, don't understand this either. They, they think that they have to do all these complex movements when really if you do some of the core Olympic lifts and you focus on your flexibility and you do uh, something he calls the hex squat, then that's going to lead to a lot of uh, positive results. The second part was it's really helpful to learn the basics. Carlson encourages people to uh, get involved in the stock market if they want to learn how businesses and how markets work. It's something that is a good idea to expand your knowledge base. And uh, Flaherty says that you need to really understand the basic principles of the Olympic lifts before you start to do them. You shouldn't necessarily just go into a CrossFit gym and start doing all of the CrossFit workouts if you don't understand the basics. Because if you don't get the basics right, you're going to make mistakes that people who know the basics um, won't make. The third thing to think about with finance and fitness is, is to ask how committed are you? Are you ready to uh, commit to the type of program that you want that will lead to certain results? This comes up in investing all the time when people need to consider if they're going to choose to index or if they're going to choose to not index. And if you're not, if you're not going to index, you need to be very active in your work and learn the basics, but also dig into individual companies and think about moats and competitive advantages and buying at the right price and being able to sell at the right price and so forth and so on. Whereas people who index, they can do that more passively. For physical fitness, we can see how committed you want to be for your physical results. You can choose to engage with a trainer like Flaherty and build the skills and learn to do the Olympic lifts and the basics in the right way. Or you can just be a, a, uh, a weekend warrior and just do some of the things. But either way, your level of commitment is going to influence what results you have and how much work it takes. The fourth thing was the value of compounding. And in investing, this is really easy to see. We can assume that the stock market returns 6% over time and you can see how your money will compound after 40 years of investing. And surprisingly, physical fitness can compound too. And I think it compounds 
in a different way, where if you stay relatively healthy, then you don't have the small buildups that are negative. You don't add a pound a year like is the normal for the American male. You don't have these weak tendons and ligaments in your body that will be more prone to breaking or tearing over time. So the value of compounding applies both to physical fitness and financial health. The fifth thing to do is to fix your weaknesses. A problem that amateur and professional athletes have is weak supporting muscles. And, and, and Flaherty tells Ferris that it's fine, to, it's fine to build your major muscle groups, but you can't neglect the supporting muscle groups. And for investors, those weaknesses often manifest as cognitive biases, things that we do that aren't objectively following the rules or the checklist that we have created for a certain situation. And sometimes it's as helpful to fix your weaknesses as it is to build up your strengths. And the sixth thing that's in common is, is permanent loss. You want to do things that will avoid permanent loss. So for athletes, you want to avoid injuries that can end your athletic career. For investors, you want to avoid losing all of your capital. Thanks for listening to an allergy-filled episode of Mike's Notes. In addition to the allergies, we just got a puppy, so that's why I missed last week's episode as we adapt to puppy life. Um, you should be getting the episodes on a weekly basis again. Just to recap, we opened with a quote from Dan Carlin on the History on Fire podcast where Carlin was pointing out that it's really valuable to know what the other side is thinking. It's, it's incredibly important to see things from both sides, to be a devil's advocate to a situation, to understand it deeply. Our first point was to think about what job are you hired for? What are people paying you to do? And if you can answer that, and if you can adapt as that demand changes, you'll do well in your career. Our second point was about the value of checklists, about how writing things down helps your thinking, about how you have to be okay with checklists not being perfect, how you can use the defaults of checklists to your advantage. The third thing that we talked about was how relevance is more important than information. We can collect all kinds of information. We maybe can collect too much information, but Having it be relevant and having the real signal come through and making choices based on that is incredibly important. And in the fourth point, we saw the similarities between physical health and financial health and how doing certain things right in each of those areas can lead to really positive long-term results. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.